Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll take a look at the just-completed term of the U.S. Supreme Court, including a key First Amendment win in 303 Creative. It has always been the case under the First Amendment that the government cannot force you to speak against your conscience. And why it matters. We should be able to speak without fear of the government telling us that we have to speak something that we disagree with. We'll also look at the court's decision on racial preferences. This basically repealed affirmative action in college admissions. And the 9-0 decision addressing religious accommodation in the workplace. The court broadly agreed that religious liberty was worth protecting. We've got all this and more. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the just-completed term of the U.S. Supreme Court. As most of you are well aware, last year we felt the legal tectonic plate shifting beneath us in the overturn of Roe v. Wade and the court's Dobbs decision. This year, the court took up a number of cases impacting the lives of all Americans, including essential First Amendment freedoms in the case of 303 Creative versus Elenus. For background and context, we turn to attorney Barry Arrington. Arrington is based in the Denver area, as is Gino Geraci, my colleague on 94.7 FM, The Word. I wanted you to comment even on the framing of the argument, the decision of the argument, the implications of this case. This case, obviously, is it's a national case, but it had its origins right here in Colorado, right? Uh, as, as you know. Uh, and it was decided in the Colorado District Court, and, and uh, there was a bad opinion in the District Court. It went up to the Tenth Circuit. And, and I actually filed an amicus case, uh, an amicus mm-hmm. brief in the Tenth Circuit at that level. And I remember drafting that brief and framing the arguments in the amicus uh, perspective, from my client's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this could be a slam dunk. Jeepers. I mean, th- this is the first amendment to the United States Constitution versus some statute. I mean, that's like a Goliath and an amoeba. Uh, and I thought, well, this is going to be an easy case. And I was absolutely stunned, just mm-hmm. flabbergasted. You could have knocked me over with a feather when the Tenth Circuit, a two-to-one decision with very strong dissent – by Judge Timkovich, but the t- that the two in the majority, the Tenth Circuit says, yeah, the First Amendment has to bow to sexual politics. Wow. Uh, what? What? And 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 thank God we have a majority, a, a strong majority on the Supreme Court now who says no. The most fundamental liberty listed in the Constitution is the right to life. After that, the right to freedom of conscience. The, read, the, the government, it has always been the case under the First Amendment for decades, centuries, that the government cannot force you to speak against your conscience. They have no power. They have no power to force an American citizen to say words that they don't agree with. And, and there, there are many, many cases. Uh, and, and, you know, and in one sense, 
it's, it's not a remarkable case because Justice Gorsuch just says this is what we've always said, and we're just saying it again. In another sense, it's a momentous case because there was some doubt in many people's minds about whether the courts were going to cave in to radical sexual mm. uh, lobby, even when it comes to the First Amendment. You know, the answer by Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson to Gorsuch's claim, can a state force someone who provides her own expressive services to abandon her conscience and speak their preferred message? They said, well, yeah, yeah, you can if you claim the state is regulating conduct rather than speech. And Gorsuch says, are we deciding the same case? Are, are we on two different pages? He, he, he basically is arguing with the dissenters. How could you get this so wrong? And, and interestingly enough, if you read the case, Sotomayor ignores the stipulations in the case. Right. Now, stipulations are, are facts that the parties agree to. The state of Colorado agreed in the, in the district court that this was expression. The state never argued in the, in the district court that this was conduct as opposed to expression. They, they, as a matter of fact, they stipulated just exactly the opposite. And Sotomayor and her dissent flat out ignores that in, in, in pursuit of her own political agenda. I don't say it's a legal agenda. It's a political right, agenda. Right, right. And uh, again, what does this mean to the Lori Smiths of the world? What does this mean to Christians of conscience, to people who say, I, I want to do what I believe God has called me to do, but I don't want to have to abandon my deeply held religious beliefs in order to find myself in the public square? It's a reprieve, you know. It really is a reprieve because the issue shouldn't have ever been in doubt. But sadly, Two judges of the Tenth Circuit put it in doubt when they said radical sexual politics trumps the First Amendment. If you read the Tenth Circuit's opinion, uh, and, and I've read that, they basically said, yeah, this is speech. We admit, we admit this is speech. But the state of Colorado's interest in forcing you to toe the line to radical sexual politics trumps your speech rights. It, it was staggering, the sheer unprecedented raw governmental power being exercised on behalf of the radical sexual lobby and manifested in the 10th Circuit decision was just, it, it took my breath away. The exercise of raw governmental power coming from Colorado and their Civil Rights Commission has indeed been staggering. There's no question, this is a very big win. But what would have been absolutely devastating? A court decision undermining this First Amendment freedom. Jenna Ellis explains. She's also an attorney and the host of The Jenna Ellis Show on the Salem Podcast Network. She, too, was a guest of Gino Geraci. We live in a society where uh, the government cannot compel you or me or anyone who identifies in the LGBT community, for example, from speaking contrary to not only their sincerely held religious beliefs, but their conscience. And so the government cannot reach inside into our minds and tell us what we have to believe. And that is true for me and you as Christians, and that's true for people who choose other worldviews. And so the difference here is that the LGBTQ agenda, and especially in the state of Colorado, under this ridiculously construed anti-discrimination law and the Colorado Civil Rights Division, uh, and commission, they have tried to forcibly compel 
uh, people who disagree with LGBTQ affiliated uh, people to to be forced to speak messages that we disagree with. And so so what the left is trying to say is that unless they can force us to buy into their woke religion, then they don't have freedom in this country. That is not what this case stood for. It's saying we have a right to disagree and to disagree publicly. And if you and I want to make the case, and we can and we should, that marriage is between one man and one woman, or that you can't change your gender, or that there are only two genders, and we know the definition of a woman, we should be able to speak without fear of the government not only silencing us or telling us that we have to speak something that we disagree with. And so this is putting everybody on the same playing field and saying that the LGBTQ community does not get to say that woke is the religion of the nation. You know, it seems to me that Justice Gorsuch really does get right to the heart of the matter with that simple question in his ruling. He says, quote, can a state force someone who provides her own expressive services to abandon her conscience and speak its preferred message instead? The answer by Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson is, as Gorsuch notes, yes, you can if you claim the state is regulating conduct rather than speech, and then he destroys their argument. Do you think the dissent has any kind of legitimate argument, or are they playing a kind of game in this case? Now, Sotomayor doesn't have an argument, and she didn't have an argument even during oral arguments in this case, which I listened to that were um, a little over two hours long. And and basically what the, the dissent is trying to do in this instance is to do what activists have always done, which is to manipulate the rules and try to get their preferred outcome instead of being rational, logical, and principled, and simply looking at what the First Amendment plainly says, what it means, and applying that to the case and controversy in front of it. And so what people either refuse to understand or don't understand about the First Amendment is that it doesn't just protect my ability to say something uh, free from the government censoring that or silencing me. But the flip side of that that is also protected is that the First Amendment restrains the government from compelling me to speak messages that I disagree with. And so it doesn't matter what the messages, what the medium is, or what in this instance the opposition would say. It's that everyone should have the freedom to speak their beliefs and their conscience and disagree without the government forcing them and compelling them to say something different. I mean, and and the Alliance Defending Freedom, who uh, represented this case, Kristen Wagoner, who did mm-hmm. a phenomenal job arguing this, she used some of these examples, like, for example, if if in the political sphere, a speechwriter were forced to write a speech that they disagreed with or forced to put up messages on their social media page that they disagreed with. Where does that end? And how and on what basis can the government compel us to speak messages that we disagree with? And that's at the heart of this issue. It's not about public accommodation. It's not about conduct. It's not about a discrimination against a protected class. This is all about your and my right to be free from the government compelling us to speak against our conscience. And I want to emphasize what the ruling does not mean. Uh, uh, for the pre- people who are listening, the ruling does not mean? It does not mean religious liberty provides an excuse to mistreat individuals based on their sexual orientation. And so for the left, 
paralyzed or terrified that this provides an excuse to mistreat people. That's just simply not true. Am I am I misreading this? Right. I mean, there are still uh, public accommodation laws. Like, for example, if um, a person, regardless of their faith, the color of their skin, their sex, uh, you know, anything else about them um, that is one of their intrinsic characteristics comes into a supermarket and wants to uh, buy something off the shelf, they can't be discriminated against on that basis. That's not what this is designed uh, to, to say and to protect. And so when we're talking about public accommodation, that's a very different body of law and subject matter than the rights of conscience and against the government compelling someone to speak against their right of conscience and their sincerely held religious belief. Coming up, the court addresses the issue of racial preference. This basically repealed affirmative action in college admissions. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating based on race. Well, that's a quote from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, dating back to a 2007 case. But the issue of racial preference, affirmative action, and diversity quotas remained. That is, until it was dealt a much clearer rebuke from six justices of the Supreme Court at the end of this term. Here again, Gino Geraci with Jenna Ellis. Even though they eliminate, quote unquote, admissions based on race, there's probably more to this story than just that. Can you help us understand what just happened? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a great opinion, and this is Students for Fair Admissions versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College, and the holding is that the admissions program um, at Harvard and also the University of North Carolina violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a great decision that basically repealed um, affirmative action in college admissions, as you said, uh, but really where I see the outcome of this particular opinion going is that is really the trajectory of where woke universities are going anyway, which is to say, well, we're going to not have any structured, a uh, really measurable merit-based uh, decision. So for example, for law schools, contemplating getting rid of the LSAT or putting you know, a much lower threshold or priority or emphasis on a standardized test and looking over a lot of other more subjective criteria. Um, if you follow Sean Davis, he's a great writer for The Federalist. He had a really great piece and opinion on all this, basically saying these types of universities are now just going to try to end up with the same result as affirmative action, just in a way that's not measurable like affirmative action, since that has now been declared unconstitutional. So I think once again, you know, because the outcome isn't what the left prefers, they're going to just try to get around this in other ways 
and not have uh, truly merit-based outcomes in terms of admissions processes. So it's going to be really interesting, I think, where the admissions processes go from here. Now, once again, Justice Sotomayor dissented. And in her dissent, she said, the court ignores the dangerous consequences of an America where its leadership does not reflect the diversity of the people. Now, again, that sounds more like a woke statement than a legal argument. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the same reason that the Obergefell opinion that was authored by uh, Justice Kennedy sounded more like a Hallmark card to the homosexual marriage community than it did a legal opinion, because most of these aren't substantively grounded in legal analysis or constitutional law. What they really are are the outcomes that the left prefers. And uh, Justice Thomas wrote a really scathing opinion against uh, Sotomayor in the affirmative action case and basically condemned everything that she was saying and and also against Justice Jackson as well. And I would encourage everyone to go and read Justice Thomas on this because uh, his arguments were based substantively in fact and law and in the U.S. Constitution. So much of the attention and media coverage of this court has painted a picture of a so-called radical court with a divisive conservative majority. It's a caricature, really, that says much more about today's media elite than the court itself. Take, for example, the recent 9-0 decision on religious accommodation for employees. John Birch with Alliance Defending Freedom explains the decision on Groff versus Postmaster General with John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. Tell us about Gerald Groff and what his situation was, what he wanted to happen what did happen, and how it ended up at the Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gerald is an evangelical Christian, and his religion teaches that Sundays are supposed to be a day of rest devoted to worship in the Lord. In 2012, he took a mail delivery job with the United States Postal Service, and that position generally didn't involve Sunday work, and so it didn't conflict with his religious beliefs. Uh, But all that changed after the Postal Service agreed to begin using Sundays to make deliveries for Amazon. So he immediately approached his bosses and asked for an exemption so that he didn't have to work on Sunday, but uh, they were not able to accommodate that. And so eventually he was let go entirely. He was reassigned and, and then let go. So he sued under Title VII, which is a federal law that requires all employers to give their employees reasonable religious accommodations. And what the statute says is that the employer must give that accommodation unless it presents an undue hardship. But uh, Gerald lost in the lower courts because of an old U.S. Supreme Court precedent from the the 1970s that reinterpreted undue hardship to mean uh, no more than a de minimis cost. And the Postal Service said because they had to go out and find other workers to fulfill the Sunday delivery obligation, that was a de minimis cost, and therefore they didn't have to accommodate. And today the U.S. Supreme Court overturned those decisions. Interesting. All right. So good news for for this man. But moving forward, then, John, what does that mean for the rest of us who would claim religious discrimination? Yeah, let's talk about the new standard and some context where this might come up. Um, First, the court clarified that undue hardship means what it says, that the hardship would have to be substantial in the context of the employer's business. So that could be a substantial monetary cost, or it could be a substantial disruption in business. And the size of the organization matters. 
So if you had a small business owner and they only had a couple of employees and there was a religious accommodation that was going to upset the entire business, then you know perhaps they wouldn't have to do that. But when you're talking about the United States Postal Service or other large companies, there are very few things that are, are going to be so unduly hard on them that they won't be able to accommodate them. So Alliance Defending Freedom has a, a client. His, his name is Mr. Klug, K-L-U-G-E. And he was a very successful high school orchestra teacher. But then the school had a policy that required him to use the preferred pronouns of his students. And for religious reasons that he believes God creates us male and female, and that can't be changed, um, he couldn't use preferred pronouns because he believed those to be lies. And so initially, the school accommodated him by allowing him to refer to all the students in his class by their last name only, like a coach would. And if anyone asked why he did that, he said, well, the orchestra is like a team, like the football team or the basketball team, and that seemed fine. Um, But there were a few students and a few other teachers who didn't like his religious beliefs. And so after that school year, even though the class went fine and there were no complaints from parents, the school revoked that accommodation. Well, after this decision, it'll be difficult for the school to argue that those complaints from people who disagreed with his religious viewpoints are such a hardship that they don't have to offer that accommodation again. That's interesting. Can you talk then about the significance of the fact that this was a unanimous vote? Well, that was really interesting because when the the case first went up after the, the court decided to review it, kind of the assumption was that all the conservatives would broadly want to protect mm-hmm. religious liberty and accommodations and the liberals would not. Uh, but the same thing happened that's happened in a number of cases over the last several years is that the court broadly agreed that religious liberty was worth protecting. So it was nine to zero here in the case involving the city of Philadelphia when it told uh, Catholic social services that it could no longer do foster care placements because of their religious beliefs about marriage between one man and one woman. That was a 9-0 decision in favor of religious liberty. Uh, The Masterpiece Cake Shop case, that was another ADF case involving master baker Jack Phillips and his inability to create a cake for someone uh, to celebrate a same-sex wedding, which was against his religious beliefs. That one was 7-2. So in, in case after case, you see all the judges, no matter their political persuasion or judicial philosophy, coming together to protect religion. And I think that's something that is very encouraging. Coming up, our current conservative court. One of the great efforts of the current court is to separate and distinguish politics from law. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up. When I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, Long time no see. No can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. 
When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. The decisions coming from the current Supreme Court are unquestionably the fruits of the current conservative majority on the court. But I should emphasize the word conservative should not be interpreted in the same way you might say Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, is conservative. Robert Delahunty is helpful here. He's the co-author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. He was a guest on my program. You referred to the court as conservative. Can you explain the two different views of how to interpret the Constitution, the originalists and those who believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document that can essentially be interpreted to mean whatever the times suggest? Yes, that's a really a grave and fundamental question. Let me make clear right at the start. Um, to speak about a conservative court doesn't mean to speak about a court that is politically mm-hmm. conservative. It's talking about a court that has a view of the law that is conservative. And one of the great efforts of the current court is to separate and distinguish politics from law. Many of its critics confound that distinction. But the court is as often concerned with who has the right under the Constitution to make a policy call as it is with the question, what should the policy call be? Sometimes the court itself is the final decision maker, but sometimes it says it isn't. The voters are, or Congress is, or the states are, or whatever. That's a very fundamental distinction. So when you read things that say the court has come out a year ago against abortion, that is false and misleading. The court did not take a position on abortion. It was not, it did not claim to be the final decision maker. It said the decision about abortion policy is not committed to us. It's committed to the people of the states and the state legislatures, or maybe to the federal Congress. We are not the right decision maker, and we're going to stop pretending that we are. Or let me give you another example. I know you've asked about the living constitution. I'll get to that in a second. But a very simple example from this term. The state of California, in a referendum, decided to ban the sale of pork in its grocery stores and supermarkets unless the pork was humanely bred and raised, the pigs. And they were sued by out-of-state pork producers, probably mostly in Iowa, where that's an important industry. And the question comes up to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court is not ruling on the merits or demerits of an animal uh, welfare law or on consumer protection. The question is, who makes this decision? Do we make it, we the court, or do the voters of California? And it said it's the latter. It's the voters of California. This is not a decision for us. They did not express a view about the wisdom of this animal welfare law. They just said, we are not the right decision makers. The state is. Now, as to your question about the living constitution, there are, in in fact, two dominant views about how to interpret the constitution. One of them says, this is called originalism, one of them says, go back to the original meaning that the language in the Constitution had at the time it was adopted in 1787 or maybe after the Civil War. 
the main parts of the Constitution came in those two eras. Go back to the original public meeting, which was debated publicly at the time and discussed vigorously at the time, and that is the meaning that those words have now. Okay, that is how you understand it. And if that's been the law, and there are ways of changing the law if the people wish to have it changed, but they haven't done that with the parts of the Constitution we're talking about. They could amend the Constitution, but let's say they haven't. Okay, Then you read those words in the original public meaning that they had when they were adopted and ratified into law. The other view of the Constitution uh, stems from political progressivism. It's the idea that the Constitution is very flexible, very organic. It grows, it changes, its meaning shifts with time. And ultimately, this is a formula for rule by the courts, as distinct from rule by the people. And that's a very dangerous idea, it seems to me. It's also a self-defeating idea. I mean, let's take abortion. Uh, the Roe versus Wade decision um, saying that there is a constitutional right to abortion came down maybe 45 or 50 years ago in 1973. That's roughly half a century ago. Who is to say that the Constitution hasn't lived since then to the point where Roe versus Wade has to be rolled back? Maybe the fear in the 1970s was overpopulation. Maybe now there's a fear of underpopulation or, or, or the failure to reproduce. Um, and so the court should um, make the Constitution live and breathe and it requires reversing row. It's a self-defeating view, the living constitutional view of the Constitution. It gives the judges a free hand to make policy. And they're not policymakers, they're lawyers. There's more of my conversation with Robert Delahunty and you can find it at ChristianOutlook.com. Coming up, abortion is bad. Abortion kind of fosters this anti-woman society. So the idea that that pregnancy is a disease, for example, is deeply embedded in the concept of abortion. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. We've just marked the one-year anniversary of the release of the Dobbs decision, the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. It was the end of a 50-year battle, a decision that was a bit surreal, and then it was hard for many of us to believe that it actually happened. But thankfully, it did happen. And now we embark on another challenge, persuading the American people, persuading women, of the empirically verifiable truth that abortion is harmful to them, to the communities in which they live, and of course, to the innocent unborn human life. Eric Metaxas turned to Alexandra DeSanctis. She's the co-author of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. What are some of the arguments for why abortion in fact harms women? Sure. So we, we kind of break this down into two categories in the book. We talk about first women who've actually had an abortion and the way that abortion harms them. So we go through the many types of short-term, long-term physical complications that can come about 
as a result of abortion, and there are plenty, although the other side would like to, to claim otherwise. And we also talk about the psychological after effects of abortion. And unfortunately, we don't hear about this very much because abortion supporters like to, to quiet this down. First of all, many women don't really want to have an abortion, right? They do it because they feel like it's their only option or someone's pressuring them or they don't, don't have any other choice, don't have any support. Um, and they find themselves, you know, regretting this deeply for many, many years after the fact, ashamed to talk about it. You know, oftentimes they suffer from drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicidal ideation, um, all these horrible psychological complications as a result of having had an abortion. Um, so that's the women who've had an abortion. We also talk about how abortion kind of fosters this anti-woman society. So the idea that that pregnancy is a disease, for example, is deeply embedded in the concept of abortion, that a child doesn't belong inside his or her mother, right, or the child is an enemy. All this kind of fosters a culture where the male mode of being human, you know, not becoming pregnant, is the, the ideal or the normal mode of being human. And the, the fact that women become pregnant or have children is somehow lesser than or strange or something we need to kind of suppress and, and put, put aside or at least be able to put aside when it's inconvenient or problematic. I mean, it's so sick when you, when you put it that way, that idea of trying to divorce a woman from one of the most beautiful aspects of what makes her a woman uh, in the image of God. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to, to be at that place uh, and to be giving vent to that as though somehow that's a legitimate point of view. Yeah, it's a really unfortunate situation. And I think it, we, we certainly as pro-lifers shouldn't minimize the fact that um, you know, pregnancy, having childbearing is a unique thing women have to deal with, right? Contrary to uh, what some might say today, men don't become pregnant, right? Only women become pregnant. It's a unique thing that women go through and have to deal with. And it, it certainly causes health problems sometimes or inconveniences or difficulties. Uh, but the answer to those difficulties is not to say that we should kill unborn human beings, right? The answer is to have a society that's more responsive to the needs of women that, you know, encourages men to step up. And unfortunately, I think abortion has helped to normalize male abandonment, right? Rather than saying that men should step up and support women and children, particularly when there are unplanned pregnancies, we've just said, oh, well, if a man doesn't want to step up, women can just go have an abortion, right? And so women are left to choose between either being abandoned and on their own or going and committing an act of violence against their own child in order to save themselves. And we're supposed to believe this is female empowerment. And obviously this all comes from the sexual revolution, this idea that we can somehow divorce sex from marriage and family and childbearing. But that's obviously where this has led us. Those ideas have led us to a place where men are encouraged not to be responsible, not to be men. Let's be blunt. At the same time, they're encouraging women not to be women by having an abortion. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And you're exactly right to point to the sexual revolution. I think for the last year, we've talked about, you know, how do we prevent abortion? How do we as pro-lifers kind of step up and support women? What kind of laws do we need to try and prevent abortion? But the root of it is that we live in a culture where casual sex is normal, right? Where unplanned pregnancy is normal, where male abandonment is basically accepted, right? And in that context, women are always going to think they need abortion, or some women are always going to think they need abortion. And so unfortunately, I think to get rid of abortion, ultimately, we're going to have to get to the root of all of that and untangle all those lies. That idea that abortion harms women, it seems to me that strategically, as we try to make it less normal for people to have abortions and, and try to make people understand that it's a bad thing, we have to be clear about how it really harms women. In other words, if, if you're thinking about having an abortion, you need to be aware of what this might do to you in the future. You need to know, you need to hear the stories so that you 
understand there is very likely a high price. This is not like getting a mole removed. No, and unfortunately, the abortion industry, promoters of abortion, abortion advocates, they really have a lock on what our culture hears, as you pointed out. And so women, even when you you go to get an abortion, abortion uh, providers have lobbied for decades now not to have to tell women about the physical and psychological risks of abortion. They sue in court constantly not to have to give the kind of information women would really need in order to give informed consent. And you talk about, you know, hearing stories of abortion or on Oprah. All we hear is stories of women who are so glad they had an abortion. Or even sometimes you'll see these articles of women saying, I didn't have an abortion and I wish I had, right, as their living child is out here in the world. And it's it's heartbreaking and awful and, you know, horrific that this sentiment is out there and normal and celebrated. But if a woman comes along and says, actually, I, I had an abortion, I wish I hadn't, it you know, ruined my life, or it's been awful, I wish I, I, wish I hadn't done it, uh, women like that are sidelined by abortion supporters. As much as they talk about you know, sharing your story of having an abortion, they really only mean the story of being happy that you did it. I, I, I believe, at least I, I have the optimism to believe that this is changing uh, and that because of the, the change in the media landscape, stories can get out that weren't able to get out in previous years. But I want to ask you also, you, you talk in the book about how the issue of abortion has harmed politics and harmed the rule of law. Talk about that for a moment. Yeah, so we definitely, one chapter we dedicate to uh, talking about the history of Roe v. Wade. And essentially what we talk about there is how the justices who ended up in the majority, the seven justices who, who wrote um, Roe v. Wade, they knew before they wrote that ruling, before they even heard arguments, that they were planning to legalize abortion. They wanted to do that all along. They had a political agenda, an ideological agenda. If you go back and look at the documents, as many scholars have done, they thought that they could just settle this for the entire country. Uh, they didn't think they had an obligation to read the Constitution and see what was in it. They worked backwards from the conclusion they wanted to reach. And that's why I think you know the Dobbs decision does a, a really good job of, of showing this, if you go and read it. But the decision was not real. It was not grounded in anything. It was not legal reasoning. It was a political ideological decision masquerading as law. So we go through all of that. And we talk, too, about our politics and how, in particular, the Democratic Party is just totally enthralled to the abortion lobby now. And, and we go into a bit of the history of, of how that happened. But the conclusion we draw is, look, this is a sad situation for Americans, right, that we, don't, we have a choice between one political party that supports this grave moral evil, you know, lock, stock and barrel, it completely supports it, and another political party that doesn't, right? And how great would it be for us as Americans to have a real choice between parties or politicians, all of whom know that abortion is a grave moral evil? And unfortunately, we just don't have that. Coming up, the pro-life moment looks ahead. I like to think of it as a kind of all-hands-on-deck moment. More with Alexandra DeSanctis when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. For more than a century, AM radio has evolved to meet the needs of our community. In their car, at home, or on the job, more than 80 million listeners depend on AM radio each month. AM radio is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, which keeps us safe in dangerous times. It's reliable, free, and public safety depends on it. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we mark the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, we hit something of a reset button where the political landscape on this issue is markedly different in, say, Texas, relative to my own home state here in Oregon. Let's continue with a few more minutes of Eric Metaxas with Alexandra DeSanctis. What does the pro-life movement do next? Where, how, where do we go from here? Well, I, I like to think of it as a kind of 
all hands on deck moment, right? We need both law and culture. Can't We can't just be focused on changing policy. We can't just be focused on building pregnancy resource centers or staffing them. We have to think about it from, from all angles. And so I think we've seen great success over the last year that a, a number of states have passed pro-life laws that they've wanted all along, that they, they weren't able to get in place because of Roe. We've seen some states in the middle come up with, you know, something like a 12-week bill or a 15-week bill, which is, is certainly not ideal. And we hope they'll keep having more pro-life laws over time. But there's definitely been a lot of positive progress at the state level. I think we need really a, a Republican party that's willing to step up and support pro-life laws vocally. You unfortunately see a lot of Republicans at the federal level um, who've called themselves pro-life now saying, you know, go talk to your state legislature. It's not my problem anymore. I don't even want to talk about it. You know, Roe is over. And I think we need a really different message from the top level. We need Republican candidates who are committed to talking about being pro-life in a compassionate, convincing way, supporting pro-life policy. So I think it's going to have to be a, a kind of wide-ranging strategy. Just uh, to, to help us understand what happened a year ago when the Dobbs decision came down and Roe v. Wade was overturned, what are some states, in other words, Roe v. Wade uh, found, you know, this phantom right in the Constitution for abortion for every state. Okay, that's overturned. So suddenly the states get to decide. They get to argue amongst themselves about this issue. So what are some of the success stories in states around the country? I was talking to Abby Johnson recently, who was telling me that in Texas, it's virtually impossible to get an abortion. And I, I, I really couldn't even believe what I was hearing. I thought, really? Is, is that possible? So what, what is Texas like now? And what other states do you know of where it is very difficult or if, if not impossible and illegal to get an abortion? So there are about, I would say, a little more than a dozen states between 12 and 20 states, you know, states like Texas, like you mentioned, Florida is another one, South Carolina, I believe Kentucky, but there are many, I don't know off the top of my head, most of them have rallied around um, heartbeat bills. So these are bills where a woman can't get an abortion after the point where a fetal heartbeat can be detected during an ultrasound. And that means somewhere around between six and eight weeks of pregnancy. And so Typically, most women find out they're pregnant a little bit before that, so there is still some time to have an abortion, but you're almost always not going to be getting an abortion before that point. Um, so in these states and in, in a few others, abortion is essentially illegal after conception. And so I think it, it is true that in, in plenty of states, women, unless they're getting some kind of mail order abortion from a, you know, an abortion provider online, they're mostly not getting abortions anymore. Thank you for joining us for The Christian Outlook. You can find the entire interview with Alexandra and Eric Metaxas at ChristianOutlook.com. If you enjoyed the program, be sure to mention it to a friend and send them to ChristianOutlook.com and encourage them to sign up for our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producer David Pouchon and Justin Mansfield, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. So she ran away in a sleep.